Good morning. It is such an honor for Kim and I to join you this morning. I think ever since Kim and I had the privilege of meeting Bert and Nikki, we thought, oh my, we, we cannot wait to come to the church and see the folks that are around them. So this is a very satisfying moment for us and made all the more meaningful because last night we had the opportunity to sit with the elders and wives at a Mexican restaurant where I did some serious damage to my body, <laughs> but listened to the stories of amazing grace in Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. And now I get to be here this morning, so it doesn't get any better than this. And I appreciate you receiving us so warmly. And Bert, thank you for praying for Kim and I this morning. So Bert mentioned that I serve Sojourn Network. He asked me to say a few things about Sojourn Network. And I'm not sure what comes to your mind when you hear this word network, but Sojourn Network is a ministry that is filled with pastors. They are broken pastors. They are pastors who are seeking to be humble. They are earthy pastors, but they are guys who love their local church, but realize their local church will be stronger and their leadership will be stronger if they have a place to go for counsel, a place to go for training, a place to go when they're in the middle of a crisis and they need some kind of outside perspective. They have a place to go to be sharpened in the area of missions and how to mobilize the local church for mission. They have a place to go where they can sit with men who are unimpressed with the size of their intellect, with the size of their churches, and will speak truth to them and pray for them and encourage them. So that's part of what we try to do. But it's not just about pastors because Sojourn Network is also filled with, with churches. Churches who love the idea of church planting and want to partner together to see that happening. And by the grace of God, it, it is happening. We have the, the privilege right now of supporting, I think, over a, a dozen different church planters, primarily here in the United States, to assess them, to fund them, and then not just to send them out and say goodbye, but to provide a kind of ongoing care and coaching because we're not simply about planting churches, but we're about planting churches that last. So we're not a big group, you know, and we don't regard ourselves as exceptionally talented, but we are trying to be faithful to God and faithful to the gospel. And I sure am glad that we get to do it in partnership with Crawford Avenue Baptist Church. So thank you. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm 63. Title of this morning's message is The Empty Soul. The Empty Soul. And I'm going to read Psalm 63, verses 1 through 8, and you can feel free to read along with me. Beginning with verse 1. O God, you are my God. 
earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless your name as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you that there is power in the name of Jesus, as we sang this morning. And there is power in the words of Jesus, in the words of God. And so this isn't simply some exercise. This isn't, this isn't an episode of entertainment this morning. God, we believe that we are about to encounter you in your word. So help us to have ears to hear what you would say. And we pray this in Jesus. Amen. Let me begin this morning with a, a question. When was the last time you felt hollow, vacant? Like all the spiritual life had just been flushed completely out of your body. Maybe for you it's been recently. In fact, maybe for you it was this morning. You woke up feeling that way. And you've woken up feeling that way for the last couple of months. You feel empty. Like a dry well. Kind of emotionally parched. The idea of experiencing God's love... These days for you, I mean, it's just this abstract concept, can't even wrap your brain around it. There's nothing in your experience that corroborates even the existence of God, and you just don't feel his presence. The idea of God's love doesn't map on to your reality. Well, if you can relate to that this morning, God wants to speak to you from his word. Because before us in Psalm 63 is a hymn. It's a song. It's a song that is composed by David during a time of great duress, during a time where his heart has been scraped so bare that he could barely find any reason for hope. 
And in fact, as we study this together, as we learn the details of the story, the facts of his story, we're going to find that the facts of his story are not pretty at all. For instance, fact. Absalom, David's son, has stolen the heart of the people through an act of betrayal and had himself declared as king of the nation. Fact. The son is now trying to kill, trying to exterminate, trying to annihilate the father. Fact. David is now set adrift. He is running for his life, disenfranchised and dislocated from all he ever knew, not understanding exactly what God is doing. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 15, there's this passage where it says that David's entourage passed through the Kidron Valley and moved on toward the desert. And that's where David is when he writes this psalm. He's in the wilderness. And the wilderness, the desert, reflects the external environment, reflects the reality of his internal being. He is empty. You know, some people say that there are few blows that crush the soul like the betrayal of one's child. That there is a way that that particular life experience plays out where it just drains the desire for life until each day becomes a kind of funeral where you mourn the death of what my family should have been, what our family might have been. See, that's where David is right now. And it's in that hour of darkness that David composes this song. And here's what this song is. This song is about how David will respond in the face of emptiness. It embodies how David will respond to God in his emptiness. And as we study it together, there is, I believe, one overarching theme that emerges from this text, one fundamental idea that I'm going to, I'm going to express this way, and that is that empty is as empty does. Let me say that again. Empty is as empty does. Now, you hear that phrase, and it's probably going to strike you in one of two ways. You're either going to be sitting there thinking, um, huh? Is, is, is anybody else here confused? Does this guy up here preaching know that he's babbling? Bert, have you really vetted this guy? I mean, is he really sane? Or you're going to think, you know, I think that sounds like that Forrest Gump thing, you know, that his mom said to him, and because Forrest Gump felt he was stupid, and he was convinced that he was stupid, and his mother sat him down one day, and his mother said to him, now, Forrest, stupid is as stupid does, meaning that true intelligence is found in actions, not in labels. True intelligence is revealed in what we do, not by how we feel about ourselves. So, empty is as empty does means that our desires for God are sometimes reclaimed by our 
actions, not by our feelings, but by our actions. They are sometimes restored to us by what we do when those desires feel lost, when our soul feels utterly empty, that we don't reclaim them simply by seeking to feel a certain way. We see, we reclaim them by following the path of David. So, Let's look together at what David did so we can discover what we too should do. So what did David do when he experienced empty? I've got three points I want to cover with you. Here's the first one. Go up. David is in the desert. Again, this is the context. Let's remember the context. David is in the desert of Judah. He's being hunted by his son Absalom. He is weary and famished. He's feeling desperate. He's feeling unloved. He doesn't know what to do. What's his first step? Where does he do? What does he do? What does he say? This is what David does. He goes to God and he says, Oh God, you are my God. David bears his heart to God. David goes up. David begins by reasserting God's role in his life. Oh God, okay, let me just think about this. Okay, let me start from the beginning. Oh God, you are my God. You know, sometimes life is so bad, you just got to go back to the beginning. Sometimes life is so complicated and so difficult and so complex that the only thing that we can do is go back to the basics. It's to hit the reset button and be reminded of where this whole thing started, which is exactly what David is doing. Okay, let me just, let me just go back and strip this down to where the whole thing started. Oh God, you exist. I believe you exist. And by the way, you're my God. We're together in this. Oh God, you are my God. I don't feel you. I don't see you. In fact, even me speaking to you seems to defy logic, reason, ration, everything within me. There's nothing that I feel that resonates with the reality that I'm saying, but I'm going to declare something because I believe it to be true. Oh, God, you are my God. David goes up. I brought a quote with me by a commentator a well-known theologian, John Calvin, he, went, he said about this passage, he said, David does more than simply pray. I love this. He says, he sets the Lord before him as his God. He sets him before him. I think, you know, we have these seasons in life where we become aware of our drift where we become conscious that there are lies that are being spoken, where we become perceptive to the fact that we're drifting and we no longer we no longer have longings for God in the same way. What David does when he's experiencing that is he sets the Lord before him. He returns and says, Okay, let me just let me just go back to one of the few things that I know. Things are so confusing and convoluted right now in this season of my life. I don't know where to turn. I look around. I'm in the desert. All of my circumstances seem to corroborate the fact that I'm being nothing but judged. But let me go here. Oh God, you are my God. I know who owns me. I know the one I follow. Empty may be my feeling towards him, but empty is not his feelings towards me. Oh God, 
you are my God. You know, if we have any guests here this morning, and maybe you're just checking out this church, maybe you wouldn't even consider yourself a Christian. This Jesus thing is perplexing to you. And I want to say first, thank you so much for coming. You're most welcome here. But I also want to tell you something about, about being a Christian. See, be, being a believer means that God has fixed a new reality for the believer as a result of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a reality that exists completely apart from our feelings. It's a reality that is locked down completely apart from our circumstances. The reality begins with the idea that we are loved by God, that God substituted His Son, Jesus Christ, for our sins so that we can be reconciled back to God. As a result of that reconciliation, we have now been adopted into the family of God. We have been filled with the Holy Spirit. All of those things are objective realities that never change. There are mornings that you wake up and you feel that so keenly. It means so much to you. It penetrates down to the deepest part of your soul and you feel so grateful. You're overwhelmed with the reality of it. And there are mornings that you wake up when you got nothing. There's nothing there. And no matter what you do, you feel empty. And what David is doing is he's, he's basically going up and he's saying, you know, I may feel empty, but one thing I have to remember is that God is always full toward me. I may feel empty, but oh God, you are my God. And one of the things I think we have to derive from this passage and this opening is that it seems like with by David going up, part of what he's doing is he's making God the answer to empty. He's making God the answer to his lost desires. And this is important to recognize because when desires are empty, when desires feel lost, the heart, the human heart tends to reach for that which is most available in order to get back, or that which is most comfortable. In fact, we play with, we toy with verse 1 a little bit, and we switch the words around, and we begin to say, Oh, job, you are my God. Or, oh, entertainment, you are my God. Social media, friends, you, see, it can even be good things. Oh, spouse. You are my God. Oh, local church, you are my God. Good things, but they're elevated and turned to in the wrong time. And see, what David does is he said, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. See, David understands something that we often miss, and that is that lost desires can only be found in God. Lost desires can only be found in God, so he goes up. He goes up. There's another part of this, too, that I think we have to recognize in this idea of going up, and that is that David's prayer seems to reveal something really important. And that is that David 
assumes that God put him in the desert. Think about that for a second. God put him in the desert. In other words, his present place is a God thing. See, when we cry out to God in the desert, we, we rightly recognize God as king and God as the one who is in control of our life. And that can be really hard to do when we feel like we're in the desert, when we feel like we've got nothing and we're empty. Because the temptation here is to not only swap God out of the picture, but to put Absalom in the picture, the son, to put Absalom in the picture as the one who's really controlling our future, as the one who really has his hand on the joystick of our life and is ultimately controlling where we go and what we do and how things are playing out. And, you know, in this passage, Absalom is, he, he's first a person, he's a real person, but he's not just a person. Because for the purposes, perhaps, of your life, Absalom may represent that, that unexpected blow that you never imagined in a thousand years that you would have to suffer. That unexpected twist in the road where you assumed that you understood the path that you were on. You knew the direction you were going in. And all of a sudden, this person that you're connected with does something that has, has a domino effect and flips you off of that path, diverts you from the path that you expected to be on, sets in motion a chain of events that ultimately affects you. In fact, it goes over you like a tsunami and you never even saw it coming. I can guarantee you one thing, and that is that David never expected the betrayal of a child. David never expected the betrayal from his son, the loss of his home, to be displaced and king wandering the world as if he has no place to lay his head. Those times make us empty. You know, I can't relate completely to David, but I can relate a little bit in that Kim and I left the Philadelphia area after living there for 30-some years and being in the same local church and being the same denomination for about three decades. And yet there were unexpected problems and unanticipated challenges and there were mistakes and sins and ignorance and and by the way I'm just talking about me there okay I'm not even getting into anybody else I'm I'm thinking about me and my list that's what I was bringing to the party but it all converged to deliver us you know, to the great state of Florida, which is where we live right now in Naples, Florida. But I have to be honest with you in saying that I, I had to struggle with feeling almost defrauded by God. 
I had to struggle with feeling like God hadn't delivered on his end of the bargain. Because I, I had this assumption that, that I, if I lived by this certain set of values, that they would always deliver the fruit that I anticipated. And even though I'm not aware of it, and you know what I'm talking about, we have this kind of implied covenant with God that we, were, we, we wink at God. We say, okay, God, I know this really isn't in your word, but you and I kind of have an agreement where if I do things completely right, if I get it all right, if I raise my kids the way everyone's supposed to do it exactly right, if I conduct my marriage in the way it's supposed to go at every phase, if I live my life in a way that seems correct, then you're going to deliver on my goals in the way I expect, and in that you will be glorified. And then God breaks in unexpectedly and reminds us that, you know, I think that's more about your glory and not my glory. And that's more about your plan and not my plan. And for, for us, I mean, the life that I always expected to have in my 50s just evaporated. And it left me disoriented and exiled and feeling empty. And as for feelings, I mean, I, I couldn't trust feelings. My feelings were scraped raw. The only option we had was to go up. And now it's four years later, and I, I can't believe all that's happened. And I can see that God had new vistas in view. God had new blessings. But I didn't know that four years ago. It's not like God says to us when he's going to take us through a season of emptiness. He pulls us aside ahead of time and says, oh, I'm so glad I got a hold of you. Come over here. I want to tell you. I'm going to share a few things with you. I'm going to give you a little picture of the future. I want you to understand there's a purpose. There's a meaning. You know, that I'm, I'm in this the whole way. So just chill out and relax because I got you covered. Part of empty is God's absence. Because he's doing this work where he's training us to walk by faith and not by sight. And there's no more important lesson that a believer can learn on earth. So maybe for you, this season has delivered you to the same place as David. You feel chased. You feel harassed, unloved, empty. And maybe you've been blaming Absalom. You know, for you, you're, you're, you're fixed on your boss. He fill, or she fills your world. She fills your horizon because you think she's basically in control of your life. That's Absalom. Maybe you're fixated on Absalom. But David learned that God had his own plan and that life was not first about how he how he felt each and every day. It was about who God is and what God has done for him. And that sometimes God just exercises the prerogative to empty us so that he can reestablish his role in our life. He can remind us of who's really in control. So, if you woke up today, this morning perhaps, feeling empty, let me encourage you, follow David and go up. Because empty is as empty does.
Second point, go back. Go back. Verse 2 says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. By the way, he's not in the sanctuary right now, so he's, he's recollecting back. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. I will bless you as long as you, I live in your name. I will lift up my hands. So in, in verse 2, what begins to happen is David is recalling times where he was satisfied in God. He says, I remember when my desires were filled. I remember experiences of power and glory in the sanctuary. I remember, verse 3, encountering the steadfast love of God in a tangible and quantifiable way. In verse 6, he speaks of remembering God on his bed, meditating back on the faithfulness of God. In verse 7, he's thinking back on times where God has helped him, where God has come through. He literally says in verse 7, you have been my help. Please don't miss what's ha happening here. See, what's happening here is that David's soul may feel empty, but oh boy, his mind is full. His mind is full because he is intentionally remembering back to times where God has been real to him, times where God has been faithful. And this may perhaps be the most striking feature to our proposition of empty is as empty does, and that is that David may feel empty, but he decides to fill his mind with the past. He decides to respond to empty the way he lived when he was full. He decides to respond to empty the way he did when he was satisfied. So he basically says, you know what? I, I'm going to worship God. I'm going to lift up my voice. I will praise you. I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied. My lips will bless you. I will sing. I will pray. Those are all things that are in this text while he's in the desert. While he's in the wilderness. While he has nothing inside at all. It's like David is grabbing, you know, jumper cables. You know, you, you, you jump a car the battery of a car. It's like David is grabbing these jumper cables and he's taking them into the past and he's hooking them up and he's pulling the other set forward and he's hooking it up to his life in the present and he's throwing a charge forward. He, know, he, he knows he has no power in the present whatsoever, so he's got to go back. And he goes back, he hooks them up and he starts throwing the charge forward into the present. So he goes back to God's love, back to God's faithfulness, which then triggers worship. It's utterly amazing. But here's the thing you got to hear. It's a strategy. It's a strategy that David is employing because he feels empty. You know, the great evangelist, John Wesley, once, once said something that struck me the first time I read it. He said, preach faith until you have it, and then preach faith because you have it. Preach faith until you have it, and then preach faith because you have it. David has taken a similar approach. See, David is praising God until he's filled, and then praising God 
because he's filled. But this is important. David worships not because he's satisfied, not because of his emotions are full, but because he remembers that God is real. And he remembers that God has been good to him. And so going back helps to charge his soul in the present. It's like David is saying, yeah, I may, I may be empty, I may feel empty, but worship will fill me. Being before God will fill me. And it's going to fill me full, he says. I mean, I love this, I love this visual in verse 5. He says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. <laughs> fat, I mean, I love fat and rich food. That is like my entire food pyramid right there. Fat and rich. And then sometimes I switch them around and go rich and fat. And so Bert and I are probably going to grab lunch today. I'll be saying, waiter, um, what do you have in fat and rich and in fact, just give me fat and I'll sprinkle rich on it. Think about what's being said. Think about holiday meals. Think about times where you've just had the most delicious dinner and how you walked away feeling full, feeling satisfied. See, this is what David's saying. He's saying, I remember what it's like to feel full. I remember what it's like to be satisfied. And I will enjoy that again. And so he hooks up the jumper cables to the past because he got nothing in the present. But he, and that reminds him, I'm going to enjoy that again. Listen, are you empty this morning? Go back. And then preach faith until you have it. And then preach faith because you have it. Love your kids until you feel it, and then love your kids because you feel it. Thank God until you are satisfied, and then thank God because you are satisfied. David goes back. And sometimes we have to do the same thing. Final point. Go loud. Go loud. You know, Scripture reveals many of David's faults, but among them is not an absence of, shall we say, passion. Because for David, God's answers for empty are not the rantings of a victim's soul, but, but it actually seems like David is kind of calling forth this, this whole body response to this experience of empty. I mean, just look at the physical responses he's talking about. My lips will praise you. My hands will be lifted up. My mouth will open. I will sing for joy. See, for David, feeling empty called for a kind of, you know, a kind of paradox, a kind of apparent contradiction where he doesn't necessarily feel it, but he's going to worship because he believes that God is. He doesn't necessarily feel it, but he believes that God is faithful, so he's going to worship in response to truth. And so after going up and going back, David begins to respond with these strong, truth-based affections toward God. David goes loud. He goes loud in the desert. His environment hasn't changed. His location hasn't changed. His feelings probably haven't changed, but he's going loud. 
David seems to say, you know, the best way to respond to empty is just to go to God and give him your heart, soul, mind, and strength and start to worship. So David goes loud. Now, I got to tell you um, how, how provoking this is for me. And, and you got to know me to know how odd it is that I, of all people, would be talking about this particular point because I'm just not naturally a passionate guy, naturally a, an emotional guy. I envy guys for whom passion comes easy because that's not me. I mean, I was raised a Presbyterian. Uh, and the kind of Presbyterians that are, are, are frozen in the pew. Those were my people, okay? And of those frozen Presbyterians, I was Dutch, okay? So um, you think Dutch. My dad was a steel worker. His dad was a steel worker, as was his grandfather and great-grandfather. I might have seen my dad cry once, and that was when Franco Harris caught the Immaculate Reception on December 23rd of 1972, and the Steelers beat Oakland. And it was emotional for my dad. And, and, and the guys in my neighborhood, they were not like, you know, kind of getting in touch with their feelings. And when they did, they used four-letter words to express it. And so I wasn't wired that way. I wasn't getting that from my family. I wasn't getting that from my friends. I mean, Kim and I are about to celebrate our 35th anniversary on December 21st. No, on August 21st. Right, Kim? Yes, okay. Um, August 21st, 1982. I'm sitting in the church basement. I'm about to be married in 15 minutes. My brother, who's just like me, and I are sitting in the basement. We're, we're sitting on two chairs looking at each other. We're just looking. We're not talking because we're brothers, so we don't talk. And all of the communication just is exchanged through looks and things like that. And so I'm sitting there 15 minutes before the wedding starts, and I'm looking at him, and I just have this spontaneous outburst of, of weeping. And, I, and it lasts for about 15 seconds. And he's looking at me like this. And I'm kind of I'm, I'm finishing up. And he's looking at me and he says, what, what was that? And I'm looking back at him and I'm saying, I, I have no idea what that was. I, I, I don't think I've ever experienced it. I think it has something to do with, you know, what's about to happen in 15 minutes with me getting married. But I'm not accustomed to these feelings that find expression in emotion. And I'm, 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 again, growing up in a church where there was no expression, there was no, you know, the only way people's hands would be up in the air in my church was if there was a robbery. Okay? So I'm not inclined to explore feelings. I want to get things done. I'm more on the analytical side than the emotional side. But here's a reality that I had to come to grips with as a believer. And that is that when one reads scriptures, strong affections, going loud, strong affections are a claim that my master makes upon me even when I'm empty. 
Why? Because the heart of worship is not merely to express present feeling. The heart of worship is to respond to past truth and future promises. And so we can, we can worship. We can go loud. You know, I don't take Kim out on a date and debate whether I should express affections. I don't examine my preferences, my parents. Am I really oriented to expressing affections to my wife? My dad didn't really express affections, and I don't come from a people that are like that and my lineage and heritage and kind of how I'm wired. That doesn't reveal that affections are consistent with who I am. See, if I act consistent with how I feel or who I am at all times in the marriage, and I say, hey, I'm just keeping it real, you know, I'm just doing what's authentic and, and, and in actuality in my heart, well, then I, I just violate the law of love because it's the marriage that calls forth affections. It's not my personality. It's the marriage. Sure, sometimes you, you know, I mean, you've been married. Some of you have been married. You know, sometimes you feel a little empty, but that doesn't make you less married. And it doesn't make you less loved either. So God comes to us through a passage like this and says it's not about type. It's not about temperament or personality. It's about a response to truth even when we feel empty. Do you see what's happening here? See, we are passionate about God, not because of how we feel, but because of the relationship that God has established with us through Jesus Christ. It's not about how we're wired. It's about what He's accomplished on our behalf. Because God was satisfied in Christ at the cross, we can be satisfied in God even when we feel empty. Because of the cross, we know what that verse 3 means, that His steadfast love endures forever. And it's better than life. Now I'm wrapping up, but I want to say this. I, undoubtedly, there, there's probably some folks here that are saying, Dave, I, I appreciate what you're saying, but you know what? You really don't get it because the doctor called and it's bad. It's far worse than I thought. Or Dave, do you realize what the job situation is around here? There are no jobs, and I'm deep in debt. Or Dave, do you know what it's like to be so depressed that the greatest act of courage that you display every week is simply to get out of bed? Do you understand that, Dave? I just feel too empty. Well, if that's you this morning, I want to encourage you, don't miss the point that David is making. Empty is as empty does. Because it seems like David's approach through this psalm is, I'm going to praise God until I feel, I'm filled, and then I'm going to praise God because I'm filled. I'm going to praise God until I am moved, then I'm going to praise God because I am moved. I'm going to praise God until I have feeling, and then I'm going to praise God because I have feeling. I'm going to praise God until I am satisfied, and then I'm going to praise God because I am satisfied. David goes loud. And sometimes we just have to do the same. So, if you are not satisfied this morning with your passion, or maybe you're not passionate about being satisfied, 
well, you're in the right place. You are among the right group of people. We get that. But I would just encourage us, let us all draw near to God and ask him to stir our affections and to satisfy our quest for satisfaction and to help us to lift our voices with a a new awareness that though we may feel empty, God is still worthy. And there is a day that is coming when you are going to feel whole. There's a day that is coming when you are going to feel satisfied. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue now and respond in worship, we we pray that you would reach down and fill our emptiness and satisfy our souls and give us a fresh experience of your steadfast love. In Jesus' name.